Don't you love it? The season of Advent is here. It's a season of uh, waiting for the uh, appearance, the appearance of, of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus appeared in the first Advent, and we live in between the first Advent of Christ and his appearing again. And so our life is characterized by waiting. So we're in a series of messages now in December. The, uh, the Advent season will have four messages, and all of them will come from Isaiah. Someone has called it the first gospel. Others have called it the fifth gospel. Because there are things in Isaiah. Isaiah says things about Jesus. It says things about Jesus' death that the New Testament doesn't say. There's much in Isaiah to encourage us and especially uh, to give us hope. And here's how that works. Now you have a prophetic literature of the Bible. You know that what happened was Isaiah was a prophet that God gave him insight into the future. And so some of the things that Isaiah prophesied came to, to happen hundreds of, and hundreds of years later after he gave those prophecies. And some of the things that Isaiah prophesied and haven't come to pass yet. And so we can have confidence, right, in a person who's batting a thousand on predictive prophecy. In other words, if we live in between the advents of Christ, then we live in a season of waiting, a season of anticipation. And it will help us to meditate on the promises of God because he's kept his promises in the past. We know that he'll keep his promises in the future. Have you ever been to the Secretary of State waiting on, you know, to maybe renew your tags? Now, I got to tell you, here in Jackson, they're doing a really, really, really good job. I don't know who's in charge of it, but I think probably statewide they've made some. So I don't want to malign them, especially if you work for them. I don't want you to be discouraged coming to church. I've noticed that they're doing a really good job. Years ago, I was in another state, and it was November, and I was going to renew my tags and I thought, well, I need to set aside half of the day, you know, to sit there and wait with all those other grumbling people who are waiting, you know, to re for the little, they get that little tab, you know, and it has a number on it, six, 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 you know, and then you wait and you sit there and wait and you wait. And I walked in one Saturday morning, I pulled my number and I looked around and I thought, I want to be here halfway through the great tribulation. So I'll just go do some other stuff. So I put my little number in my pocket, which was fortuitous, and I went shopping. I went to three or four or five different places, and then I thought, well, I'll stop back, and I will see if the line is shorter. And you know what happened? This was a smiling providence. I walk in, and they call a number, and the number sounds familiar. It really wasn't 666. That was a joke. It was something else. They called the number. I thought, huh. I looked in my pocket, it was my number. I had gone all over town while everybody else was waiting ugly. And I had gotten all my things done and then I walked in. That's how much Jesus loves me. <laughs> now, that only happened one time. Uh, it probably will never happen again. I'm sure Jesus loved all those other people that were waiting there. But have you ever been waiting with somebody and they were waiting ugly? You know, instead of being like patient and kind, you know, surf your phone, something, do something. They're like crab grouch, they're crabby and they're grouchy and they're mean and they're nasty. You ever meet anybody like that? It's called ugly waiting. I want to talk to you today about how not to do ugly waiting, but how to wait faithfully on the Lord, how to be faithful in your waiting. And again, so we're teaming up this uh, Advent season, and it's a privilege to have uh, Pastor Leo in the house and in the church, and his ministry's been rich here, and he and I are going to team up together. So this is my Sunday. Next week will be his Sunday. I get the other two if we're in good health. Otherwise, I'll probably call him, and he'll do more than one Sunday. But we're taking passages from Isaiah, 
And the reason that we're doing that is because we want to build up the hope of the church. We want the church to live in joyful, confident, cheerful, uh, bright expectation that they can build their lives on the promises of God. Let me say it in a little bit more direct way. We want you not to be ugly waiters. We want you not to be ugly in your waiting, not to be frustrated in your waiting, but rather to, be, to have an anticipation that the future is good for you because you're following the promises of God. Now, you might wonder, well, how are we going to do that? Well, what, the way we're going to do that is we're going to meditate on the promises of God. Because believers, when they set their hope in God, when they meditate, when they, when they fill their minds with the promises of God, that's when their waiting is faithful. And you can be faithful in your waiting. So taking a look at Isaiah, take your Bible, open to Isaiah chapter 1. And we're going to preach through the first uh, 60 chapters this morning. Um, yeah, kidding around, yeah. No, we'll just, uh, we'll, we'll talk about Isaiah a, a little bit before we go on. So Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of four kings. We had a long, he had a long ministry. He was a highly educated person. He was advanced in his vocabulary and in, in his, his literary style. If you read the book carefully, you can tell that he's familiar with the royal court. He's informed about the affairs of state. He has a wife and, and, uh, and, and at least two sons. Isaiah, if you read the book, you can tell that he is very compassionate, but that he is also uncompromising in his delivery of truth. Tradition says that Isaiah was sawn in two during the bloody reign of Manasseh. And he may be the one that Hebrews 11 is referring to in Hebrews 11:37, when it says some were sawn asunder. So I think we should give a listen to this man. Isaiah predicted the Babylonian captivity 150 years before it happened. He predicted the Babylonian captivity before Babylon was a world power, before Babylon was a significant world power. So he'd given many predictive prophecies about the future, and these were fulfilled in Christ in time. But you're going to see today that he gave predictive prophecy about things that will happen it, later, later that haven't yet happened. And so you see what I'm saying. Let me give you a couple of big words. Apocalypse and eschatology. You can impress your friends tomorrow at work. When we think about apocalypse, we, I generally think about like something chaotic. It's really not what the word means. It's the, it's the Greek word for lifting the veil. And so the, it's, it's, the, it's the word that we, the, that it's, it's similar to revelation, is to see something. Apocalypse then deals with the end of history or eschatology, the thing of end times. And so here we have something that we're talking about here. We're talking about lifting the veil on things that are going to happen in the end. Now that's going to help us, right? Because if we have a really confident record, if we, have, if we see real clearly what's going to happen in the end, then we kind of know our place. And that's the kind of literature we're going to look at today. We're going to lift the veil on things that are going to happen in the end. We can look forward to that. Isaiah has a beautiful prophecy. It's in actually in Isaiah 2 where we're going to study that. And let me remind you, if like, for instance, you had a John MacArthur study Bible, that wouldn't be a bad study Bible to have, or, a, or an ESV study Bible, that wouldn't be a bad study Bible to have. All the smart rats are taking notes on that right now. Um, if you were to look in your John MacArthur study Bible, you would see there was a whole page of prophecies that Isaiah gave about Jesus that came to fulfillment in his life. And you would see there would be a whole big list of prophecies that are going to happen in the future. Now, if, he's, if we, can, we can be confident that the things he said are going to happen in the future are going to happen because the things that he said were going to happen 
in the past, our past, happened. And so in these prophecies, you have a current, you have a current meaning for the persons that were there. And then, of course, you have a, a future fulfillment. And, then, and sometimes a far fulfillment, a far and complete uh, fulfillment. And the stories of Jesus' birth in, that are given, the prophecies of Jesus' birth that are given in Isaiah, often the two advents of Christ are mixed together. And so when you're reading, you're reading through and you'll see something, oh, that happened at his birth. And you keep reading and think, that didn't happen at his birth. But this is the way maybe you studied the mountain peaks of prophecy and how, you know, you give a diagram where the prophet looks into the future and he doesn't see everything in between the mountain peaks, but he mentions the things that are on the mountain peaks. Is this making any sense to you? Do I need to take seven or eight more hours to explain it? Yeah. And so, no. And so, in other words, this is what happens in these predictive prophecies about the birth of Christ. Often you'll see things that clearly happen when he, when he came in his first advent at his birth. And then you'll also th see things that are going to happen yet future. And you see that here in Isaiah. And so if you think about that, we need, we need these kind of prophecies because we need to know that God kept his promises in the past. And we need to build our lives on his promises and know that he's going to keep his promises in the future. And that gives a person hope. That gives a person bright confidence that they can build their life on the promises of God and it's transformative. Studying the book of Isaiah can change your life. Do you remember the story in Acts? Uh, Philip is going along and he sees this uh, Ethiopian eunuch, this African fellow, and he's been reading the, he's been, he's visited Jerusalem, he's been reading his Bible. And what's he reading, do you know? You guessed it right. He's reading from Isaiah. And what does he ask? He's reading from Isaiah and he says, who is this man who's being described here? And then Philip describes Jesus to him and then his life is transformed. That's a big long story about that in Acts chapter eight, you should read. But you could be like Philip, you could have your life completely changed by reading Isaiah and going, who is this describing? What is this that this is talking about? And how does this apply to me? It can be transformative for you, it can change your life. And so when these ancient prophecies, prophecies they sink down into your soul, and you meditate on them, they have a transformational effect. So that's kind of what we want to do. Now, God's given us a picture of the world to come, again, so that he can infuse our hearts with hope so that we can withstand discouragement, so we can withstand temptation. And that's uh, why we have this. And so this morning, we're going to gaze into um, Isaiah chapter 2. And you're there. I'm going to read to you from Isaiah chapter 2, just verses 1 through 5. You may not understand all of it immediately, but just listen to it with your heart. And you notice that it's talking about something that is amazing and something that's beautiful and something that should put like joy in your heart and it hasn't happened yet. Isaiah chapter 2, in Isaiah 1, Isaiah's open the book, he's talking to Jerusalem and Judah. And sometimes he calls Judah Israel in a general way, but he's talking specifically to Judah. And he's going to say to them, you have given yourselves over to idolatry. You haven't been faithful to the Lord. But then he's going to give them this predictive prophecy about the future in chapter 2. And that's where we are, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. That's our text today. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, said concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. 
and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In this text, you have four powerful reasons to wait faithfully. Here's the first one. Number one, wait faithfully because one day Jesus here has promised to end all rebellion. He'll establish his rule on the earth. This is really what Isaiah is referring to. In, in Isaiah 1, chapter 2 and verse 2, it will come to pass in latter days. If you take the New Testament and you study the New Testament and you see references to latter days, these are the references to times after Jesus' first advent and up to his second advent. This is the time that Isaiah is ultimately referring to. And so you understand this is a, this is a reference to Jesus' rule on the earth. And this is one of the reasons we can wait faithfully when we understand that one day Jesus is going to end all rebellion and everyone is going to come into obedience to, to the Lord or, or into submission uh, to the Lord. And he will establish a rule. The scriptures say that he'll establish a rule on earth. Uh, notice the second reason to wait faithfully. One, because Jesus will end all rebellion one day. Two, because Jesus will end all ignorance and all arrogance one day. What happens when he establishes his mountain? And this mountain is a symbolic reference to kingdoms. And he's saying the kingdom of God based in Jerusalem, literally on earth in Jerusalem with Jesus as the king. This is a reference to the millennial reign of Christ, I believe. This is, this is uh, um, all, it, this kingdom will be above all the other kingdoms of the world. And many other passages of scripture teach that. One day, Jesus will end all ignorance. What, what will he do? What is one of the things that he'll do when he comes and he establishes his rule? He'll teach everybody. And everybody will flock to him and learn from him. He'll teach them. And this is what it says here. It will come to pass in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established in the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills. And all nations will flow to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. And out of Zion will go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Have you ever been to a Bible conference, a really good Bible conference? Okay, forgive me, but I, I kind of see a Bible conference on steroids here. Like, can you imagine, like, I, years and years ago, I was privileged uh, to go to uh, Word of Life in Scroon Lake, New York, where they have a really nice Bible conference. I was really young, and, and we, we went up into um, uh, the place, and, and, and there was an island for the kids to go to the camp, and I was a youth pastor, so I thought I was going to spend the week on the island with the kids. But when I got there, they said, no, they said, you're going to stay in the inn. And so they put us, they put me up in this beautiful old Adirondack Inn. They said, we only eat twice a day, but the meals were amazing. I mean, they were amazing. Uh, and so here I am in this beautiful, this summer, and it was up in the mountains. So it was just a beautiful, cool week. And I would take the ferry over to the island, and I would see whatever the kids were doing, their quizzing and the singing and stuff like that. And then I would come back uh, to the inn. Uh, and I would read on the porch or I would get an Adirondack chair and sit it out by the lake and I'd read by the lake or I would read in my room and, or I would eat or read or read or eat. Um, and then they would have these conferences and they had these great speakers that were very gifted and I would go to the sessions there would be singing and you'd sing and you'd listen to these speakers. I remember as a young guy sitting there thinking, this is one of the neatest things I've ever done. 
And I remember thinking too, I, I would love to do this someday. I, and the Lord's let me do that lots of times in lots of different places. And so uh, if you like the idea of a Bible conference only, imagine that they announce the, the food is better than you've ever had before. And no one is ever going to do anything bad to you here ever. It's a, it's a place where peace prevails. Oh, and did we tell you Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the keynote speaker. Now, if you don't like a Bible conference like that, I'm really nervous about you. <laughs> I'll just tell you that after you, if you're a believer and you die and you go to heaven, you will like that a lot. And it will be a lot more than that too. But it's kind of what's being described. All the, all the nations are sweeping up to Jerusalem. There's a beautiful hymn. Have you heard this hymn? It's called For All the Saints. I love it. It, it talks about, in one of the places in the hymn, it talks about how people are going to come sweeping into heaven from all the places around the earth. And here's how it's put poetically. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl, stream through a countless host, singing the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We get to be there for this great Bible conference when Jesus is speaking and teaching the nations and people from every nation are there. This is just amazing. Sometimes our Christmas carols, they refer to the birth of Christ. But sometimes our Christmas carols do what like these Old Testament prophecies do and they refer not only to the birth of Christ, but to his ultimate goal in the world to establish his authority in, I believe, a millennial reign and beyond that into the, the eternal kingdom and the eternal state when he takes over, when, when heaven comes to earth and he renews the whole earth. And the hymns are, are often about that. I heard this story, maybe you did too, about a young man who didn't like the church music. Have you heard this? And so he went to his dad, who's the leader in the church, and he says, I don't, I don't particularly like the, the church music. And his dad said to him, well, if you don't like it, you know, write your own. And so his name was Isaac Watts, and he wrote his own. Whole hymn books of songs that were written by this young man. Because he, and one of the songs that he wrote goes like this. And it's a song about the second coming. And it's specifically about the second coming and the establishment of Christ's 1,000 year reign on the earth, a millennial reign on the earth. Here's how it goes. Have you heard this before? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Have you heard that before? Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. He's saying, he's talking about the, the curse being lifted from nature or partially lifted from nature during the millennial reign and completely during the ultimate reign of Christ. No more let sins and sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground. Did that happen when Jesus was born? No, but it started to happen, right? Because it was going to happen ultimately in the reign of Christ in his kingdom. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace, and he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. This Christmas carol is about the second coming and the reign of Jesus Christ. This is why we're so happy at Christmas time. It's not just because all the kids are going to get us what we want on our Amazon wish list. That's one good reason. It's not just that our wife is going to break out all of our favorite recipes. That's a good reason to be happy, but that's not the ultimate reason. It's because it's a reminder that Jesus is keeping all of his promises to his faithful. And it's a reminder for us to 
build our lives on the promises of God's word. It's a reminder of us to saturate our hearts with meditation on the promises of God because that helps us endure and not wait ugly, but wait beautiful. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, these truths powerfully fortify the soul. This story comes out of the Revolutionary War that the chaplain, George Washington's chaplain, James Caldwell, they were being attacked. And Caldwell's wife was praying in her house and was mercilessly killed by the enemy. They regrouped and they came back in order to um, uh, recapture their town. But they didn't have the, they didn't have the wadding for their guns. As the story goes, the chaplain, who's obviously his heart is broken because of his wife's death, and they're fighting to win back their town, says, I know where we can get wadding for the guns. And they go to the church, and they get the, hymn, they get the hymnals, and they tear the pages out of the hymnals, and, and, and they say that he said, give them watts, boys, give them watts. They tore the, pigs, they, they tore the pages out of Watts' hymn book for wadding for their guns. Now, this is, this is symbolically true for us too. The songs that we sing in church, they're not just little silly songs that we sing. They're things that prepare us for the warfare that we're in. They keep you from being discouraged and out of play. You see what I'm saying? They help you to build your life on the promises of God. They remind you to confess your sin. These, uh, these are uh, weaponry and, you know, like in spiritual warfare. And that's how, that's how we should see that. And so you see, uh, in, when Jesus comes, one of the things that he's going to do is he's going to take over the earth in a benevolent leadership. And then the nations are going to float to him in the capital of Jerusalem. Well, he'll be on the throne. And Jesus is going to teach the nations. And then it says, he will also judge between the nations. Notice just the third thing. We wait faithfully, not just because one day Jesus will end all rebellion and Jesus will end all arrogance and all ignorance, but because Jesus will one day end all injustice. He'll judge the whole earth. That's what it's saying right here. He's the judge of the whole earth. Don't ever allow yourself to get in mind a picture of Jesus that doesn't include his thorough judgment on things that are wrong. It would be a distortion of who Jesus really is. The Bible doesn't teach about a Jesus like that. The Bible teaches about a Jesus, the true, you know, Jesus, who has a passionate righteousness. And he has, a sen- he has the ultimate sense of justice. This is kind of important if people have hurt you. Remember what the Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. In other words, you don't take that into your, you can't do that as well as the Lord. So the Lord will either pour out vengeance or, or justice or righteousness on all sin, or he'll take it upon himself, either one. And he's given us a, a choice. Do you ever find yourself saying, that's just not right? Do you ever find yourself thinking, That's just not fair. Ever feel that way? You should. Because there's injustice all over the earth. Think about, we love America. I love America. But think about the condition in America today. I've been thinking about this. And ask yourselves, what have we done as Americans? What have we done about like injustice in America? What have we done? Think about this just for a minute. What have we done in America about the horrifying violence in schools? in churches and public places. What have we done about that? Think about that for a minute. What have we done about, you know, racial inequities or ethnic inequities against people, people that harm other people because the color of their skin uh, is different? What have we done about that? Think about that for a minute. What have we done about 
uh, other things that are really, really unfair, like economic disparities, when some people that are really well, you ever been taken advantage of by people that have more than you? And it's, it, if, you, if you look at the world carefully enough, you see that the powerful people often take advantage of the people that aren't powerful. That's just true. People that, are, that have power, advantage, wealth, and privilege are often unkind to people who are weaker and they take advantage of them. So, all of us have felt the, the pain of that some. And what have we done about that? That's a good question, don't you think? You, you think about the whole refugee thing and the whole argument about, you know, building a wall or opening a wall or firing tear gas on people or, or allowing people in. And, and how do you untangle that mess? How do you know what, what you ought to do? You know, you can't just like scroll through Facebook and somewhere between your recipes and, you know, you can't, you can't come up with deft political commentary that will really right the wrongs that are in the world today. What have we done about those things? That's a good question. And what should we do about those things? And what can we do about those things? Those are questions that really ought to, that ought to cause people who have the heart of God sincere concern. What about the refugees in the world? You can't answer all those questions easily. What have we done? Here's the answer. What have we done? Primarily, we've done some other things, but have we not primarily just bickered about it? Isn't that true? We pretty much argued about it a lot, and we pointed the finger a lot. People that don't see it our way are wrong. No matter what way we see it, the other people are probably the ones we see as part of the problem and not a part of the solution. Now, I say all this to say, what is Jesus going to do about it? It's like he's going to do about injustice what we can never do about injustice. And even though, you know, the king, you know, God's will should be done on earth as it is in heaven and every place where we have power to do it, we should do kingdom-like things in order to kind of mediate the pain that's in the world, in order to kind of buffer the pain in the world. But we are not going to fix the world. That's why we give ourselves to the preaching of the gospel and that's why we don't renege on the preaching of the gospel because it is in bringing people under the authority of Christ is their only hope for ultimate justice in the world. Justice in the world comes when Jesus brings justice to the world. Peace comes when, but that's getting ahead of myself. That's the fourth thing. We wait faithfully because one day Jesus will bring peace to the earth. Let me review these four things. In this passage, it says that one day he'll end all rebellion. One day he'll end all ignorance and all arrogance. One day he'll end all injustice. And one day he'll bring peace. I think it would be a really good idea to be on his side since that's the case. Look at what it says, the way Isaiah says it in Isaiah 2, in verse 4. He'll judge between the nations and decide disputes for many peoples. And they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. They say this is etched on the UN building. People who don't necessarily believe that Jesus is going to be the reigning coming king have often seen this passage of scripture and their hearts have kind of, they rise up to that. What about a time when we take all of our weapons and we turn them into farming implements and you don't need your, by the way, can I suggest to you that might not be what you do right now. This is talking about the millennial reign of Christ. I'm just saying, it might be helpful on occasion in a fallen world if someone comes to hurt somebody you love to be able to defend yourself. I'm not saying the Bible doesn't teach that. I'm not sure you should be really eager about that. 
But I would say that the Bible is teaching that there will become, a, well, there will, that we live in a dangerous world now where, where uh, of necessity or as a result of people's hatred and their fallenness, we war against one another. But there will become a time when Jesus comes and he brings peace to the earth. It would be a bad mistake for us to think that we could bring peace to anything without Jesus. You can't bring peace to your own heart without Jesus. You can't bring peace to your family without Jesus. Have you ever heard this song? I heard a song once. It was written by a very famous guy. It's called Imagine. Have you heard this? Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. You recognize this, John Lennon's very famous song, Imagine. And, and let's not be too hard on him. When he writes the song, he's a young man yearning for peace on earth, like we all do. He's a young man who's been around enough to see the, the things in the world that are not fair and not just and not right. His conclusion is, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above his only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there are no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. No religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope one day you'll join us and the world will be as one. And the tragedy of this song it comes out of the heart of this young man who imagines a world at peace. Like you and I have imagined, especially at Christmas time. And we wonder, what does that mean, that, that angelic announcement, peace on earth? And why hasn't there been peace on earth since they said that? And he writes this song and his life is cut short by an act of violence. <laughs> Rolling Stone magazine wrote about this. It's interesting. Rolling Stone described the lyrics of this song as 22 lines of graceful, plain-spoken faith in the power of a world united in purpose to repair and change itself. See what she's saying? Rolling Stone says, that's beautiful poetry saying the world can bring peace to itself, but the world cannot bring peace to itself. This passage teaches us that peace will come to the world someday but that will not happen until the Prince of Peace comes. Now, I heard an interview of John Lennon's son. I don't say it to be mean. I identify with the young man, John Lennon. And his son, who was estranged because his dad committed adultery, took another wife and kind of abandoned him. He said, I have to say, this is a quote from John Lennon's son, Julian. I have to say that from my point of view, I feel like my dad was a hypocrite. Dad could talk about peace and love out loud to the world, but he could never show it to the people who supposedly meant the most to him, his wife and his son. How can you talk about peace and love and have a family that's broken to bits and pieces with no communication, with adultery and with divorce? You just can't do it. Not if you're being true and honest with yourself. And recently I saw an interview of Julian and I think he's come to reckon with, with that. And he maybe has a softer heart toward his dad's memory. But he said that when he had to litigate to get a settlement from his father's estate, and with that, he wasn't given by the other members of the family memorabilia that he wanted to have. 
He had to actually take the money that he won in litigation and had to buy things that were dear to his dad. And, and when, I, when I read that story, I could identify deeply with that because I want peace in my heart and I never could have it until Jesus came. And I want peace in my home and I have a really nice home. But without Jesus, we would not have a prayer. We would not have a bit of hope. I have a nice marriage and a faithful wife. But if Jesus didn't help us, Lois, am I right? We would be in such trouble. We would not want to try to live without him. This church can't have peace. This nation can't have peace. You can't have peace in your heart or home any more than John Lennon and his wives and sons could have without Jesus. But Jesus promises that we can have. So what do we do? What should we do? This is interesting. Look at the final thing there in verse 5, a conclusion, if you will. What does he say? Because Jesus is going to come and do all of these things. We wait faithfully. We don't wait ugly. And it's described in verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In other words, since the Lord has revealed this truth to you, you know, behave in a manner appropriate to what you know and continuously behave that way. That means, you know, walk is the idea that you continuously do something. So since we know that Jesus Christ is the king of kings, he's going to come to earth someday. All the nations are going to yield to him. He's going to teach all the nations. He's going to judge all the nations. He's going to bring peace to all the nations. Then what should we do? We should walk in the light of that. We should live in the light of that. We should walk in the light of the Lord. And that's what it says in um, Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, it's the passage there that talks about suffering and how creation is suffering and how we're suffering. But it says we're suffering as we, what, wait eagerly for the coming of the Lord. Wait eagerly. Three times it says we have eager expectation. This is the same hope. It's the, op op it's the opposite of ugly waiting. It's faithful waiting. It's, it's faithful waiting. It's waiting with joy and anticipation. It's hopeful waiting. It's, it's occupying ourselves with the things of God, confident he's going to come back and keep his promises one day. I, we have this little dog at home. He's a little tiny uh, terrier, little Yorkshire terrier, and he's a little short thing. And our old house, we had, we had a door that had glass in it that went all the way to the bottom. He loved that because he could just walk over there to the door and he could check out. You could see who, you know, who, who he was going to lick. Um, and, and, but now we, we got a new house and, and it has a panel in the bottom of the door. Uh, uh, once a day, a pretty girl comes to our house in a, a green VW and her little car shuts off. And if you're in the kitchen when that happens and the door's open, her little dog goes over and he literally gets up on his back feet. It's amazing balance. His whole little body is balanced on his back feet and he's looking out that door to see that girl come in. This is a picture of the eager waiting anticipation that a believer has. See, we're not just getting beat up by our economy. We're believers who are waiting on God to keep all of his promises to us. We're not just people that maybe we, we are sad because we're single again and our hearts are broken because of that. We have something beautiful to look forward to, right? We're not just the underemployed guy that needs more money. We're, we're, we're people who have been promised all the riches that are in the inheritance of Christ and we wait for them with an eager anticipation and we don't let anybody take our joy from us, right? We don't let anybody take our, our can I say it this way? We don't let anybody take, make us like cynical at Christmas time. God forbid, 
Because we are the people of Christ. We, we believe in him and he has promises he's going to keep to us. And, and so we, we, we're, we're childlike that way in our anticipation for Christmas and for Christ to keep all of his promises. We're childlike in that. This little girl, her name was Lily. <laughs> Lily, uh, when she was a little tiny girl, her mom was, uh, mom and dad were decorating the Christmas tree. And uh, she was happy. She knew that something good was happening. She's a little tiny girl. And they, they were making cookies and were playing music. And there were beautiful smells in the house and all these beautiful lights. And while they weren't looking, Lily went over and she found this fabric. It had a, it like, was shaped like a donut. It had a hole in the middle of it. It was, the, it was a tree skirt, but it had all kinds of beautiful uh, bright things on it. And she thought maybe that was something you wear. So she put it over her head. And she started running around the house. And then everybody stopped what they were doing. They all look at Lily. She's, she's wearing the tree skirt, running around the house. Everybody just stopped and they laughed. And they got out the video camera. They took a video of Lily running around the house with a tree skirt. So the next year, when they got it out, she put it on again. And she ran around the house with a tree skirt. And everybody laughed. And she did it the next year. And the next year and the next year. One day she went away to college and... And they're all looking forward to her coming home. Mom had beautiful things baking in the oven when she got home. And Lily was a grown girl now. She was all smart, poised, and educated. And when she got home, she took the tree skirt and she put it around her shoulders and she ran around through the house. <laughs> That's what we should be. We should be filled with hope, filled with joy, filled with confidence, filled with happiness. I mean, after all, we have the promises of God that we can build our lives on. Can I ask you to stand while we pray? And then we're going to sing this beautiful song, Behold Our God, before we go home. Stand and we'll pray and then we'll sing. Sing with all of your heart now as an offering to the Lord. Father, thank you that we have so much to look forward to. Thank you, Lord, that we have an appointment with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we have a great Bible conference in the, in the uh, eternal state that we're going to be able to enjoy. And, and the worship and, and the fellowship and are going to be rich. And we won't have to worry about injustice anymore. Help us, I pray, to be there and to gather as many as we can to be there with us in Jesus' name. Amen.